And now remain standing for a reading of God's Word. Beloved, and I'll open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Our text for this morning will be Matthew 27, beginning with, I'm going to read verse 27, but I'll preach 32 through 44. Matthew 27, verses 33 through 44 will be our preach text, but I'll begin reading for a bit of a context in verse 27. Hear now the word of our God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Thus far reading God's holy infallible and inerrant word. All flesh is as grass and its beauty is as the flower of the field. The grass withers and its flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. As the word that was just read to you by God's help, it will be preached. Please be seated. In the adult Sunday school class, we're studying uh, the decrees of God and uh, the execution of those decrees and his works of creation and providence. Works of providence can be very difficult to understand, to interpret. Works of providence sometimes is like a bit like looking at the moon, <clears throat> a crescent moon through a telescope. If you've ever seen on a clear night the crescent moon You'll see part of it is extremely white because the sun's uh, rays are hitting that part of our Earth's moon. And then there's a very, very sharp line, very, very sharp line, sometimes even involving half of the craters and half of the valleys and 
the planes of the moon's surface, and then the other half is, is exceedingly dark. Very, very bright object, almost difficult to see over the telescope for the glare. It hurts your eyes sometimes, so the brightness. Then it's matched by pitch, pitch darkness, shadow, dark shadow, such as the contrast of the moon at Crescent. The providences of God can sometimes be look at, uh, can be seen that way. We mistake much of what looks to be good in the world as, as good, and, and really the, there are some shadows in it. We mistake many of the shadows and think nothing good can come of it, and yet look, there is a blessing in it. This passage is perhaps uh, the most difficult of all providences to really interpret, to really understand. And it's because of the nature of its brightness and its darkness. We see here, and the most amazing, the most amazing glory of submission to the Father's will in obedience and great patience and suffering and bearing up under a huge trial of, of reviling, all without sin, without murmuring, without complaint. Surely there is not a brighter light to be seen in all creation than our Lord in his splendor, even as his gory head is presented to us with crowns and blood. And at the same time, we see the worst of our own race, the, the, the worst of our kind. We see men mocking their creator. No, we see the church, the covenant people of God, reviling the only mediator, the covenant of grace, their benefactor from, the, from their mother's womb. We see rebellion. We see huge prejudice. We see hatred and violence. So we need to take a look at this from both sides because God works in mysterious ways. Uh, but, uh, you know, as the proverb says, the glory of a king is to conceal a matter. The glory of princes is to seek out a matter. We need to understand what is happening at the cross. We need to understand what Jesus has done. We need to see him in his glory. We need to see how all this fits in God's great, great decree of redemption. And so, my brothers and sisters, I, I, I propose that the teaching here is that Jesus was greatly insulted. He was reviled at the cross by Jews and Romans alike, all mankind represented there. He was greatly insulted. Jesus endured abusive mocking. He suffered it patiently. Jesus understood that his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection were absolutely necessary in order to fulfill his glorious work of redemption. He understood. He understood his mission. He undertook it willingly. He submitted to the Father's plan that if he would offer himself a sacrifice for sin, that he would see his offspring, that he would rejoice in his youth, 
and that uh, children would be given to him, nations would be brought to him. He would have an inheritance. The Lord Jesus was, however, insulted at the cross. He endured much abuse with perfect patience. And Jesus understood that his sufferings, death, and resurrection were all decreed by God his Father necessary to fulfill the great restoration of all things, the redemption of souls. Two points to this sermon. First of all, we see evil men, dark darkness, evil men acting in malice, in unbelief, reviling Jesus at the cross. We need to see this. This is a portrait of, our, of us, of our race. These are, my friends, whether you want to admit it or not, <clears throat> our forefathers in the flesh. That is to say, our spiritual forefathers, sons of Abraham. We have been grafted into the body of this expression of faith. We can't, we can't see ourselves as so distinct from this people as if we can point a finger and say, boy, those, those Judeans, they were nasty. They were so nasty. My friends, this is God's church, and we're, there's only one church in the world. Evil men acted in malice and unbelief and reviling Jesus. Evil men took pleasure. They delighted in insults and in torture. And in insulting and torture. They took pleasure in this. This is extreme wickedness. They led Jesus to Golgotha, which is a, a place, a rock, a, a, a promontory, an escarpment that uh, it resembles a a human skull. It, it's a. <clears throat> it, it, it's aptly named that, and uh, obviously it's it's death row. It's death row. It's a place of execution. They took him for crucifixion. What is crucifixion? What does that involve? Basically, the method of crucifixion involves a slow death by bleed out. It's a slow death by bleed out, intended to be slow, involving <clears throat> increasing weakness by dehydration and exposure to the sun. The secret of this extreme vicious torture is not to harm any vital organ so as to sustain life as long as possible while it, the life flow, uh, flowed out, it trickled out. And that is the cruelty. And uh, it was there <clears throat> as a form of punishment by the Roman army to make a point. You don't mess with Rome. That's the point. Now, we don't subscribe such torture any longer in most civilized, in most civilized nations, at least not openly. <clears throat> not openly. But it does gain the imaginations of people. And it should gain our imagination. This passage is written for, for us, that we see how very serious our sin condition is, that evil men would take pleasure in this kind of torture. <clears throat> they repeatedly offered Jesus wine mixed with gall, 
His human person didn't distinguish it at first. He, he had to taste it. I think he set aside his divinity at this point and looked at that drink of itself as any son of Adam would, and he tasted and he rejected it. The wine <clears throat> mixed with gall uh, was a, a type of medicine. We could call it also poison. Um, it's, uh, it's used to thin the blood. And uh, in the anguish of the crucifixion, some soldier would give that as a mediating factor in the torture. Uh, thinking to thin the blood, it would ease and speed up the bleeding, and so give this man a bit of relief. Not absolute relief, but a, an edge of relief, that was the thought. Jesus was not interested in relief. Can you imagine this? I, I mean, it's, this is difficult for us to imagine. Why, if I'm in the hospital and I, I've just had surgery, uh, yeah, I'll take, I'll take the painkiller, wouldn't you? But Jesus was here presented as a spectacle before principalities, angels, and men. He wanted people to know the wrath of God against sin. He wanted everyone and every creature, every stone, every tree to know the danger, the death, the wickedness of sin and its consequences. He would have no relief. He turned it down. He was shamefully disrobed again at the cross. Jesus was hanged on the cross naked. I, I, that disturbs our sensibilities. It should. It should. Remember Adam, when he sinned, discovered that he was naked. Nakedness is no problem if you are a holy creature. But nakedness, nakedness represents uh, shame and exposure when you're tainted with sin. And Jesus was here beginning to bear. He was bearing the sins of his people. Uh, again, uh, the sins of his people were, were, as it were, laid upon him. And so not only was there pain and anguish and insult, but all of this while naked shame. What we have here, my friends, is the naked man. Adam naked, God clothed him. Jesus clothed in righteousness of himself, God stripped him. The soldiers then, not understanding this strange providence, <clears throat> attributes every, attribute everything to chance. The darkness of the cross, the light and the glorious splendor, they just took it as another person at death row. And so they gambled for the garment. There, the irony here is, is spectacular. The irony of these soldiers throwing lots, casting lots. We know the lot is appointed by the Lord. Wherever it falls, it's the Lord's decision. But as far as these impious soldiers go, 
They use it as a chance, probability. So we do today. We think chaos governs. We think probability and statistics. Well, it's just a matter. Some live longer, some live less. You've got to, you know, heart disease in your, in your family. You've got diabetes. Uh, here are the percentages. It's all wired in somehow. Probability is chance. There was nothing, nothing, nothing left to chance at the cross. Nothing, nothing, nothing. You see all of the scriptures being beginning to be fulfilled. You see Jesus passively receiving all of this evil. It could not have been orchestrated by any man. It was all done to him, and yet all, prof all providentially done to him and decreed by God that it would certainly be so. There is nothing left to chance at this crucifixion of Christ. And yet the soldiers at the foot of the cross, throwing, casting lots, interested in his only protection, the garment that would prevent his shame. Such is man. Sinful men. Their minds are tainted so that we cannot perceive the work of God even when it is most bright, and even if it's prophesied in Scripture, even when they are the covenant people of God, if God closes our eyes and restrains His grace, we are blinder than bats, and we will do violence. God restrains all mankind, even His church, and whatever happens, that's God's providence. Whatever light is of His Spirit, whatever darkness is of our contribution. That's how we need to view these providences and not just chance. Now, I'm not arguing against probability and statistics. Some of you guys have studied math and physics. Statistics are very, very important in lab work. We affirm science. But I'm saying that God is in the means of statistics as well. He's in the lots. But in the hearts and minds of these soldiers, it's all spurious. It's all it's all chance, not in the mind of Christ. Evil men act in malice, unbelief, in all of this reviling of Jesus, especially at the cross. Jesus, though, chose to become the spectacle, and more than a stumbling block. He was, he, was, he was the rock of stumbling. He was the rock of offense. But here he chooses to be I, I don't want to say it, that the laughing stock, lower than the town fool, the lowest of the low, in receiving this kind of disrespect and disgust. Jesus chooses will, willingly to become a spectacle to many of sin, of misery, of pain, of wrath, Look at verse 36. They sat down, they kept watch over him there. They decided, this is, this is something. What is this? They decided to have a seat. This is something to behold. We got these two robbers and they're cursing and they're spitting mad. Who is this man in the middle? refusing the wine and the gall. Well, he's heaving and he's groaning. He's, 
But what is going on here? A spectacle. The greatest puzzle of all providence. Yeah, have a seat. It's worth taking a look at. Pilate's epitaph then was placed at the, at the cross in three languages. This is not an act of faith on his part. It was basically a publication of the, of the crime uh, for which he was sentenced. Uh, again, uh, the Romans wanted to understand, people to understand that crime has its consequences. He's not here just by chance. He's here because he has been regarded as a blasphemer and a threat, a false king. All the Gospels, all four Gospels record this. This is the Roman government's certification of what Jesus thought of himself. He owned that title, and it cost him his life. That's why he died. He died because he said, I am the king of the Jews, okay, the son of God. That's who the king was, Psalm 2. All the gospels recorded, the, it was recorded in three languages for all nations of that world, uh, that time to read and to understand. This is a, bite, a biting, biting irony. These are iron, this is iron ore, ferric oxide poison biting into the, the fettered arms, the fettered feet of Christ. Bitter irony to Jesus. He being the only true king of kings and lord of lords. Pilate was nothing. Caesar was nothing compared to his person. And that's the suffering and mockery that he undertook. Jesus uh, hang there as not merely a blasphemer, but among robbers as the robber in the middle. And the robber in the middle is considered the chief of the villains. Again, he was despised more, he was dejected more, he suffered more than any. And the fact that he was in the middle, to the right and to the left of robbers, described what the Romans thought of him. He was the worst. Common people. Ignoble people, no soldiers, just regular people coming by. They also ignorantly mocked him. They said, hey, <coughs> we heard of your reputation. You did a lot of good around here, didn't you? You helped a lot of people. Why don't you help yourself? You, you've got a fabulous title, a king. Well, king, kings have power, kings have authority. Prove your claim. Just show us now that you're the son of God. Meaning, meaning the favorite of heaven, meaning the anointed, meaning, meaning the one that cannot fail. The anointing of God doesn't fail. And so they're throwing it in Jesus' face. If you have any power or favor from God, then come on down. Come on down. It's an easy thing. You've raised Lazarus, that so-called, you've raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, come on down. You've raised sick people. You've cured lepers. You've fed multitudes, you multiplied bread and fish, you stilled storms, all of nature was under your command. Come on down. 
stands to reason. They viciously then also took his foremost teaching, the most important allegory regarding his body being the temple. I mean, it's the mystery of the church. They took it and they twisted it, mocking him. Hey, you, you would destroy the temple in three days, okay? Well, let's see, what, let's see how you're doing this now. They would tempt Jesus and taunt him, hoping satanically that he would abort his mission early by coming down from the cross. Well, you know that it was a trial. Now, he was nailed, but you know, he could have torn through that flesh. He really could have. But he would not. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders ignorantly and viciously misunderstood the scriptures. You know, we're privileged to have the scriptures, but if we, will, if we don't make good on them, we're worse. If God gives us something good and we twist it and we pervert it for our own selfish ends, we're more culpable than, we, than, than if we've never had any scriptures. And there are plenty today that have the word of God and they hold it in derision to their own harm and to the harm of their hearers. And that's what's going on here. There is no... There's no certainty that if you have God's ordinances and His promises and His Word resident, that you will make good by it. Uh, it depends on His blessing. It depends on His favor. It depends on His grace. But they took Jesus' sufferings. Get this. A, a more, more, more splendid irony. They took Jesus' suffering as a sign of Jehovah's wrath and as His disapproval of Jesus Himself that is, Jesus of Nazareth, for blasphemy. They didn't... And how close can you be and miss things by, by a universe? Because the truth of it is, certainly God was wrathful, and certainly God's wrath and disapproval of Jesus of Nazareth was upon him, but by imputation, not, by, not of his own contribution of merit or uh, earning by sin. But they rightly saw wrath. They could see the sky darkening. They could see the blood and the, and the hanging on the tree. And the, the scripture says, cursed is, cursed is everyone who's hung up on a tree. They, they, they saw that. And of course, in their hatred of him, they, they quickly reached their decision, didn't they? But the father was not wrathful at Jesus, his son, his divine son, but the imputed sin bearer. And God was very wrathful at him. And I'll read 2 Corinthians 5 again. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 and following. <clears throat> All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, and here's the ministry of reconciliation. Christ, God, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we mean by 
imputation, a ledger transaction in the justice economy of God, economy of God's justice. Jesus then, who is the divine son and Messiah, the anointed one, was the only one who could really understand all that was going on, rightly interpreting it, because, my friends, he is the true prophet uh, anticipated from Deuteronomy 18, the prophecy of Moses. One brother from among you shall rise up from among the people. To him you shall give all attention. He was the prophet. All prophecy came through him. All prophecy is, re is fulfilled in him as far as redemptive prophecy. And he is the true priest, offering himself up willingly as a sacrifice. And he is the victim, the Lamb of God. And he is the true king who would deliver his people from the bondage of sin by paying the debt of sin and bring us to God. He's all those things. He's, he's, he's everything that the temple depicted. He's all... The, the fulfillment of all the sacrifice, all the sacrifices, all the prophecies. He is the sufficient and altogether perfect Savior. But my friends, evil men, they act in malice in front of this man, this prophet, this priest, this king, with reviling and scorn and hatred. And it's because sin is blinding. Sin is, sin is crippling. Sin is, is destructive, hateful. We need to see what sin is in the blackest terms. And that's why we need to pour contempt on all our sins as we sing in our hymns. That's not a popular thing to do today. What people are doing is chasing the rainbow over their own self-esteem. There's no pot over there. All you're going to find is nothing. You need to cast a heap of scorn on your own soul. Because if you don't, sin will continue to cripple and weaken and blind. And this is the, this is the fall that even the, the covenanted people of God, many churches, says Paul in his epistles, many have become a synagogue of Satan. We need to be careful. Repent. You, we need to draw near to God. We need to be very sure that, the, that our hearts are deceitful, desperately wicked. We don't understand it. We do not understand this. It takes God and His Spirit to illumine passages like this to, to show us how dark that perimeter of the moon really, really is. And then you only begin to appreciate why Jesus had to suffer so because he's paying the penalty for all of that deadly, deadly sin. God is serious about sin. He forbears with the nations. He is waiting that for all of us to come to repentance. He forbears. He's, he's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's waiting. But when he acts, he will certainly act, and he will act precisely and most justly in condemning sin. And that's what we see in Jesus. God the Father, wrathfully and justly condemning sin in the flesh, in his own son. Evil men act in malice and unbelief in reviling the precious son 
of God, Jesus, on the cross. The second point is this. Jesus endured this reviling, and he, he bore it meekly. He bore it as the Lamb of God, silently. The Lamb of God on the cross. Jesus suffered outside the gates of the city. Uh, this was a, a statement that he was not to defile the holy city of God. He was to be put outside as one that is unclean, as one that is rejected, as one that is banished, as an scapegoat. All of this is shameful uh, to the only true king of the line of David, the true heir of the city of God, outside the city. Jesus declined the gall drink and would die on his own terms, really the Father's terms, because he knew prophecy, because he wanted us to see how God deals with sin without going to hell. If you don't see it here and repent, you're going to see it in hell. This is hell. This is what hell entails. Just retribution, a holy wrath upon everyone who destroys himself and sins against God. He would die in his own terms, in his own time, and besides there was further scripture to fulfill, so he was not ready to die. Proving then, he was not seeking his own relief. He was not, he was not seeking to save himself. That was the taunt, but he was not seeking to save himself. Oh, by the way, my friend, if you seek to save yourself in this life, to maximize on its goodness and pleasure, you will lose your life. If you lose your life for Christ's sake, you will gain it back. We're in the same position. But I don't want to uh, make too much of an application here because he, in this case, Jesus is not an example for us. He is atoning, and his work is absolutely unique in suffering in the place of others. We, we, we can't suffer in the place of other souls. Jesus is unique. But he's not seeking relief till all is finished. Jesus endured the shame of public nudity. He endured the shame of those soldiers gambling with chance right at his feet. Just tell them, you know, que sera, sera. What will be, will be. Throw the incense and throw the dice. That's what people think that the life is about. Good luck. They say to people as you go to court, if I ever go to court, don't enter, don't you ever say to me good luck. That's the last thing I want to see before the magistrate is luck. I want providence and I want it heavily there. And I don't want anybody casting lots over my clothes when I go to naked to prison. Jesus knew that nothing in life was chance, all was providence, especially this suffering. And of course, he endured Adam's, uh, Adam's shame. Pilate said the best, behold the man. <laughs> he, probably did, he probably said it in Latin, not in Aramaic, but he said, behold, here's Adam. It's the death that Adam should have died. But Adam, I think, given the promise, recovered from his fall. Jesus became a spectacle. Sit down, watch. He's, this is for us to watch, to read carefully, to meditate. He wants us to consider this sight. He, God made him a spectacle. That was the design of the cross. 
He knew it, a spectacle of misery, wrath, and pain. It is that bronze serpent that bit, excuse me, the bronze serpent didn't bite anybody. The bronze serpents are metal, they don't bite. The serpents, the fiery serpents that bit the children of, elder, uh, of, of Israel in the wilderness, <clears throat> causing them to die. Many, many died from the poisonous snake bites. God told Moses to put that, uh, an emblem of, of a serpent on the bronze pole and lift it up, and whoever would look at that emblem of death, if everyone would look at the emblem of death, which is, by the way, the emblem, of, I, I take it, of the uh, American Medical Association, death working for life. Medicine is all poison, I'm told. I'm an amateur, a curse of medicine, but poison, poison. This is the medicine. Jesus on a pole, the bronze serpent. Numbers 21, verse 9, the spirit in John, uh, Gospel of John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him might be saved. Have eternal life. That's the spectacle. Jesus becoming sin, becoming the toxin, becoming the poison that we might have life. Jesus suffered mocking condemnation as the pretended king. But he was the true king. Jesus suffered in the place of the chief of robbers. Isaiah 53 and verse 12. I will, do, I will divide him a portion with the, with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. He poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He was numbered with transgressors. Yeah, he was, the, he was in the middle of transgressors. Jesus would wait for the Father's vindication. And the Father's vindication, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that God the Father vindicated his, solely, his Holy Son, Jesus, by raising him from the dead. That's when Jesus was vindicated. And until then, there, was no, there would be no vindication for all of these claims, that he was the Son of God, that he was the King of the Jews, etc. But the Lord Father said, yes, that's right. That's who he really is. Jesus submitted then to have his body, his temple destroyed. He would rise again on the third day. He knew it. Jesus endured the mocking of the religious authorities. <clears throat> they used the very scriptures that he sent his Holy Spirit to, uh, to write. They used that against him. It's like, a, it's like using a, the book of an author against him in court unjustly. The crucified robbers to his left and his right echoed the mockings and the reviling. The authorities justified their malice <clears throat> with Scripture. A holy word used to unholy ends. I mean, we do have to be careful when we make application, but that shouldn't stop us from making application. But certainly, God made application to the Scriptures. And Jesus applied this, uh, the man applied the Scriptures to himself. And he understood, and it is possible to understand these, these verses by the help of the Holy Spirit and make application. But the authorities justified their malice by making application, bad interpretation of Scripture. And of course, so will Satan. So will 
Satan's followers, so will false disciples, false brethren. You can use the scripture to prove most anything. But one thing that Christian cannot do is lie against the truth. A true Christian will not deliberately, will not deliberately lie against the truth and the glory of God in Scripture. <clears throat> Jesus then is the suffering servant. He's the true and glorious King, promised, prophesied of old, <clears throat> Isaiah 52, and uh, verse 14. I'll read that to you. As many were astonished at you, he's a spectacle, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred behind, uh, beyond human resemblance, his form beyond that of the children of, of mankind. Uh, I'll put it reverently, he looked, he looked like hamburger up there, guys. I'm sorry to say that. So he will sprinkle many nations with his blood. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. But he was cruelly, cruelly tormented. Isaiah 53, verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. My friends, Jesus, without handsome appearance, without pretense, afflicted, condemned, poor, despised, rejected, that's your Savior. If you believe in that Savior, it's because the Holy Spirit has convinced you. There is nothing here appealing to flesh and blood. There is nothing here appealing to the natural man. This is a disgusting narrative to the unregenerate. But if you see any light of goodness, any loveliness, any compassion and mercy in this suffering Savior is because God, the Holy Spirit, has convinced you. You're a Christian. Otherwise, this is an unbearable sight, a spectacle. Jesus suffered on your behalf. And rather than disgust, you worship. Rather than an open jaw of anger and retribution against the Jews or whatever, you see it as the most holy, the most wise, the most powerful direction of God's providence. Why? Because he loved you, because he would spare you the wrath and curse of God due for your sin. Again, to conclude, Jesus was greatly, greatly reviled on the cross by Jews and Romans alike. He endured extensive mocking and bore it patiently, all patiently. Jesus understood that all his sufferings prophesied in the Old Testament were necessary, most necessary, to fulfill his glorious work of redemption as the true king of Israel. My friends, we owe him praise. We owe him great rejoicing always. We owe him great thanks. 
Our sin issue is dealt with. It's done. God is not at war with you. He's not your enemy. God is reconciled. And so we preach, be, re be reconciled to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus. He will forgive you your sins. That's the gospel. Be reconciled to God. <laughs> Praise Jesus for understanding all these things. As the true interpreter, and he gives you his spirit that you might understand this providence. He understands these things and interprets through it. He knows the pain and the shame of the cross. He knows the misery of sin. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it is to suffer shame, naked. He's, he, he identifies with sinners in this regard. And so he's your closest, closest counsel and ally in all things. You may wonder then at the, pro, at the patient suffering of Jesus. You might wonder, as Pilate did, how is this man not defending himself? I'm laying on him. I'm laying on him a capital charge. We're going to execute you. Do you have nothing to say? Do you not hear what these people are charging you with? Do you not? Are you stupid? Is what he's saying. Are you awake? Is what he's saying. But Jesus was awake. And there's none like the Lord Jesus. There, there, there is none like him. And if we were to, to bear his cross, we, we will resemble him. But honestly, the resemblance is very poor at best. So you must wonder at your Savior. You thank the Lord Jesus and love him more. Now that you know afresh all he did for you. And your sufferings in this life really are not expiatory. They're not, they're, not, they're not payment in kind at all for sin. The glory of Jesus is the sin bearer that he, he bore all of your penalty for sin. You're not being punished for sin. You're being disciplined as sons that you improve and mortify sin. But there's no, there's no equity between your sin and how God deals with you in this life. There is no correlation. The correlation is all here. And it's infinite. And it's black. And it's white. The scales are true. There's justice. All your sins, all the suffering in your life, all they do is work to your good, make you long for a place of sanctuary for your soul where you will one day be with Christ forever. God is not wrathful to believers. Jesus pays all and is your all-sufficient Savior not only for the debt of sin, but for its consequences. He can bring you in one moment through faith in him and resting in him from in a state of misery and cursing, in a, a, a cursed state of, of, of death. And he can translate you into in a state of grace, of blessing, of joy, of everlasting life. He can do it, and only he can do it. Set your eyes on Jesus. Remember his promise. He came to save sinners, and that's what he does. Trust him and glory and rejoice in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the interpreter of your own word and you are your, the interpreter of all of life. We thank you that you share your insight and wisdom as to the work of, of Christ, his person, and all he's done on behalf of your people. We pray that your people would rejoice greatly. We pray, Lord, that we would tremble at our own sinfulness, at our own willfulness, our selfishness. Pray that we would be done with these things. 
that we would be conformed not only in, in, the, in your righteousness, Lord, but sometimes to the, to the degree that we might in following you in the cross, even in your sufferings. But we thank you for the exquisite work of Christ, the unique work of Christ as that lamb that was slain. Blessed Lord, be praised forever in Christ. Amen. Let's have an offering, please. Thank you.